Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is my first time in New York City. I want to be happy here. I want to make a life at home. Are you ready? Tonight is about family. The first gringo boy who smiles at you. I never seen you before. You're not Puerto Rican. Is that okay? Do you want to start World War III? You know, I wake up to everything I know either getting sold or wrecked or being taken over by people that I don't like. You keep away from him as long as you're in my house. I'm a grown-up now, Bernardo. I'm gonna think for myself. Tony, we need you if we're going to war. Who are you? Friend or foe? With the film's first iconic whistle coming from the back of the theater, I felt immersed in Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. And today we're joined by key members of the sound team, including a pair of longtime Spielberg collaborators, to tell us about their shortlisted work. We're joined by supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer Gary Rydstrom of Skywalker Sound, a seven-time Oscar winner for films including Spielberg's Jurassic Park and Saving Private Ryan, and re-recording mixer Andy Nelson, a 21-time Academy Award nominee who won Oscars twice for Saving Private Ryan and Les Mis. Spielberg also enlisted four-time Oscar-nominated production sound mixer Todd Maitland, whose credits include Joker and this year's Tick, Tick, Boom. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporters Behind the Screen. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nice Thank to be you. here. Thank you. Would each of you introduce yourselves? Todd, would you like to start? Sure. I'm Todd Maitland. I'm the production sound mixer. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson. I did the uh, dialogue, music, and vocal re-recording. I'm Gary Reidstrom. I was a supervising sound editor along with John- Brian Chumney and re-recording mixer. 
Well, congratulations on the film. Uh, the first thing I have to ask was when Steven Spielberg came to each of you and said, we're going to do West Side Story, what did you think? <laughs> well, I loved the idea. It was uh, one of the first films when I was, uh, it's the first film I ever went to see uh, at uh, a very young age in, in London. Uh, my brother took me to see it. And so I was very excited because uh, I loved it. And all those years ago, I remembered it so well. And um, and I've very happy to work on any musical, but that one particularly was such a joy. So I was very excited. Well, I was excited because I know Stephen is great at staging and filming things. And the guy's never done a musical before. So it turns out I've never done a musical before. So I was I was excited for both those things to see what he would do with it, which was, I think, pretty astounding. And to uh, just the experience of doing not only a musical, but that particular musical was was great to think about. And for me, it was great just because, first of all, it was one of my favorite films always. It's one of the things I've I've made my children watch multiple times. But my first introduction to Stephen was the day that we were doing screen tests. And I think that Stephen was screen testing me also. And I'm very happy that I passed the test. And it was uh, no, very exciting to be on it. So I've seen the movie twice in a theater. I saw it at the El Capitan for the premiere, and then I saw it at the Zanuck on the Fox lot as well. And I have to say from the opening, when um, you hear the iconic whistle, you know, coming from different parts of the room and, uh, and then all of the subsequent sounds, I felt completely immersed in the story from the very start. Would you talk about the opening? Well, uh, the, the whistle was, was so much fun because Stephen said, you know, he wanted it to come out of the darkness uh, from, from either side of the theater. And um, we started by wanting the, the very first whistle to come from somewhere in the theater, off, not on the screen. Uh, and the original concept was Stephen said, let's, let's just try this starting from the left side. So because in Atmos, we could um, take it all the way down to a single speaker. In, in 5.1 or 7.1, then the, the speakers in the surround are just an array of speakers, so you can never get a very precise location. But in Atmos, you can take it down to one single speaker. So that's exactly what we did with this. We took it to one single speaker on the left side of the room, about two-thirds of the way back. And then that was the call. And then the response we did to the opposite side of the auditorium, about halfway down again on the, on the, on the right side. Then the, the screen starts to light up with the images, and then the next whistle we hear comes from the right side, further down near the screen. The response comes from the left side near the screen, and then the third whistle we put right in the very back of the room. So it was really just a sort of a way of just making you feel that the, um, they were coming from all around us until the images start coming on the screen and we start to see where we are. Then the environment started, well, as the, as the image started to come to life on the screen, so the environment comes to life. And then the whistles, they still stayed out in the room, but they were very much now part of just the atmosphere itself. And one of the beauties of that scene as it develops is the way it was shot, which Todd has talked about. It was shot with the music in mind. So the rhythm of throwing paint cans and, and their movement of the actors was in sync with the music. So even though it wasn't a dance for a while until it becomes a dance, it's still rhythmic. And the action in the scene is incredibly well designed to be part of the music. And we, and on the sound effects side, we, we took extra care to make sure down to the micro second, 
that uh, you know, catching a paint can was in perfect sync with the beat of the music. So it was a beautiful way to start. The, and I'll tell you, because I was there, Andy and Steven spent a lot of time placing those whistles at the beginning of the movie. So <laughs> if you like it, that's good, because they spent a lot of time on it. What was smart about this version of the of West Side Story is that it made a point about the deconstruction of this neighborhood, about the demolition of this neighborhood. So it started with these great images of buildings torn apart and wrecking balls. And uh, it made it you know, doubly tragic that these gangs essentially were fighting over territory that they were both going to lose. Um, and it was good for sound for what I did because we could set up the sound of demolition. And then later in the movie, you would hear it off screen without having to see it to remind us that this is territory that's being changed, that's being, you know, undermined as the story goes on. So it was a great, for sound effects, it was a great setup for me to, to think about how I could use sound later in the film. What were some of the things you went out and recorded for that scene? Well, there was, we recorded, we'd recorded before, I work at Lucasfilm and we, uh, at Lucasfilm built a facility in San Francisco at a site of the old Letterman Hospital. And when they tore that down, we took advantage, being sound geeks, uh, went to the Letterman Hospital and recorded it being demolished. So it's actually, <laughs> it's, it's in the movie, it's the Lincoln Center getting, uh, uh, you know, sort of cleared the way for that. But it's really a lot of it's the sound of the old Letterman Hospital in uh, San Francisco getting demolished. So we recorded that kind of stuff. We recorded a lot of old cars. I, I looked for old New York recordings, which are hard to find and made use of all my New York friends to try to get old New York recordings and old, my favorite sound though to record was a siren because the crank sirens from that era which weren't electronic but they were cranked they make this great natural sound and they take forever to wind down so i got a hold of a of a, an actual old 1950s siren and we cranked it and recorded the the hell out of that that was I, I love i love old sounds in general and 1950s were a much better sounding decade than ours i'm sorry to say <laughs> So Todd, why don't we talk about the um, production sound? This was recorded, a, a lot of it was on location, some of it was on set, and then you had the singing. Tell us about your role. Yeah, I'd say about 80% of it was on location, and it was a brutally hot summer. It was probably the hottest summer that I remember in New York, and we'd have 50 dancers out there dancing and doing these massive dialogue scenes and that. Um, it it, this film, I would say, is the most complicated, difficult, but rewarding film that I've ever done. Because immediately, as soon as I read Tony Kushner's script, I realized that I needed to build a sound cart from the ground up capable of 30 channels of wireless. Because an average day on this film would be wiring 22 people, handing out between 20 and 50 earwigs, planting um, ambient microphones, and also having three booms trying to capture everything that was going on at one time. So, um, yeah, every day was quite a day. What were some of the songs that were recorded live, and how, how did you uh, handle those? Well, um, the, ones, the one song that we do in the church um, when they're getting married, that was a totally concave um, church in the basement downstairs, and the echo in there was tremendous. Now I love the echo, but also when you're when you're recording music like this or vocals like this, you want to try to minimize some of it. So we actually lined the entire ceiling of that church with Sonex, which is a sound baffling material, 
to cut down on some of that reverb because I knew we would naturally have quite a bit of it anyway because it's all stone. So, um, so we totally prepped that set, you know, just for live singing. Actually, you did a good job, Todd, because I had to reintroduce reverb later. <laughs> Don't tell the production manager that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did. But that was, yeah, that was a beautiful song to record live. There, were, there was a few that were used live in the film, but that was a particularly beautiful one. And, right, uh, and there were a lot of pieces of films, right? I mean, pieces of live, live uh, vocals throughout. Oh, absolutely. Wherever it was, it was possible. I mean, you, you said before you, re you recorded everything live, essentially, even that when it was playback, so that it could be sunk up perfectly and, uh, and used if necessary. And many times Stephen would want to do a live version and have that live version, which was also a great opportunity for us to record sound effects and ambiences and everything that was going on at that time. So we, there, I would say for probably 60% of the songs, we did a version live and we did versions playback. So the way Stephen would start off is he would do the first couple takes to playback. So the actors would warm up and get into it. Then we would do a couple takes live. Then we'd go back to playback. And then we would set up for the next angle and we'd do the ex exact same thing. We would start with, you know, with playback for a couple takes and then go to live and then back. And then Todd, would you describe the unique challenges of some of those large production numbers, um, America or the number in the gym where you had so many actors and moving parts? I'd say the gym is a great example because we had we pretty much wired everybody because everybody makes sound in this film. Even if it's even if it's non-scripted dialogue, they were they were making sounds to each other as as they were as they were dancing. So we were so we're, for the dialogue moments, everyone's wired and we have and we're booming everything at the same time. For the rest of the whole dance, we would we would play loud playback so that so that all the actors and all the dancers were energized by it. And whenever we would go to dialogue, we would have what's called a thumper track, which is a 40-cycle click track. So it's a very low-frequency thump, bump, bump. And it keeps the dancers in sync, but it's something that we can cut out with a low-cut filter so that you'll never hear it. This way, we're able to record the dialogue. Or if we're doing live singing sometimes with large groups, we'll do that also. But this way we can record the dialogue without the music over the background for it. And then we went back in. So for the dance, we went back in after we were entirely done filming. We gave all the dancers headphones and earwigs and had them redo the entire dance so that we got all of their footsteps and all their little hoots and howls and every and, and all the ambiences that were going on during that. Because when you record something with loudspeakers, you immediately eliminate the chance of recording anything live because you have a loudspeaker there. So by going back in afterwards and getting everybody wired up with earphones, they're able to really recreate and kind of create really an in-sync Foley and ambient track, which really is quite helpful for, for uh, Andy and Gary. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That was a Todd idea that I... That was great, especially in the in the gym scene. There's a lot of that that comes across the actual sound of the dancers and the movement, and they would add our own foley to it. But we had the actual sound of dancers, which I wanted to be true to. Um, as a little tidbit, we have our foley artists Kim Patrick and Margie O'Malley. Margie O'Malley was a as a dancer, and we thought we had good DNA because I know she was an extra, one of the dancers in the background in 1941 when they did the jitterbug scene. So. 
I thought we had some Spielberg DNA in there with our Foley people. So, but that combination of the actual sound that Todd captured on set plus our Foley is uh, what you hear for the dancing. The dancing was obviously so precise. Um, what did you actually record in Foley? Well, we recorded dance moves. You know, they had to do stuff. I remember, you know, it's 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 crazy what they had to try to match. Um, I just remember the, the end of Cool, Mike Face does this great little quick dance move when he's talking to Tony that it just struck me. I don't know how they did that in Foley. So the combination of, a, of you know, dancer performing it and then cutting it, um, you try to make it sound real. So um, it's a tough, you know, dance Foley is tough. So we, but I was proud of what we did. The gym scene was fantastic. Well, I mean, the real fun leading into the gym was how to build up the music so that it could just blast when the doors opened. And um, so uh, David Newman had devised a little very gentle wind-up for them walking down the hallway, the doors open, of course. We just jump into full full tilt music at that moment. And um, so, it's, yes, it's one of the scenes, of course, with no vocals, so it was just fun to make it as energetic and as lively as possible. Um, there were some dialogue moments in, the, in that scene that we had to duck and dive a little bit around, but we never wanted to lose the energy of the music there. It just needed to just really blast through. And there were the three pieces because there was um, there was obviously the mumbo at the end. So, so we wanted to try and get a bit of a contrast. So what I did, which was fun, was I tried to make the music, because we were mixing in Atmos, as I said at the beginning, I tried to make the music for that scene be much more attached to the screen itself until the mumbo when I then opened up the speakers much wider so that it suddenly had this extra layer of sort of fidelity and energy for that scene. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And, of course, then you go behind the bleachers for, for when uh, Tony and Maria meet, and uh, that becomes very tiny and intimate and very gentle. And so it was lovely contrast through that scene. It was a, it was a real joy to work on. With musicals in general, the trick is always going from dialogue to music to dialogue uh, without it sounding jarring. Was that particularly challenging in this particular scene, and uh, and how did you address it? it, it you know, the, the thing about the screenplay that Tony wrote, Tony Kushner wrote, was that this, a lot of the songs naturally came out of dialogue scenes. So it was it was very sort of organic to that moment where you were in the middle of a scene and... Um, uh, something's coming is a very good example of that with Tony and uh, when when Rita and here in the in docks and uh, they're having a lovely conversation and then very quietly the music starts and we transition into the song and the beauty was because of the work that Todd had done which I'm sure you know he, he's going to talk about in a minute which was to make sure that the microphones really matched the characters it was it was a really wonderful blend of going from the spoken word to the sung work word, whether it was either playback vocal or live vocal, they both seamlessly transitioned. And a lot of that was to do with the, the setups, the understanding of what we, how we had to pre-record the, the vocals a certain way. Plus, as I say, the fact that it was written in such a manner that you could really make these songs appear out of natural scenes. And um, it was, uh, it wasn't particularly hard because what I did was I created the the sound of the room that the dialogue scene was in, I just transitioned that into the sound of the vocals, essentially. And I, I mixed it really as if it was spoken dialogue and then added the music to that. So the combination of that where the atmosphere didn't change, the foley didn't change, 
anything made it a very, very seamless transition, which I was really happy with. Yeah, so I've done a lot of musicals. I've, this is, I've done 11 musicals now. So I seem to be somehow in the musical world, which is quite lovely. And I've really been working on many ways to try to make them sound real. Exactly what you said before, that transition from speaking in a scene to going into singing. You know, historically, it's always been you go to the playback and the singer is now obviously recording inside of a studio with a big fat studio microphone. So the sound is just vastly different from the moment when they're speaking on, on set to when they start singing. So one of the ways we get around this is by, by um, using a lavalier, a boom, and the studio microphone when they go in to do their vocal pre-records. So, they, so the, the, the mixer who's doing the music, the vocal pre-records at that time, they're recording three different tracks. They're recording a lavalier, they're recording a boom track, and they're recording the big fat studio mic, which gives Andy choices of which microphone to start the scene with and then can fade into the big fat microphone. But one of the other things that I've learned is that lavalier microphones sound very different on each different actor. So prior to doing vocal pre-records dur during pre-production, I have each actor come to me and I have on a little bar that's at chest height, six different brands of wireless microphones, of lavalier microphones, and my boom microphone. And I have them come and sing like a two minute piece that does highs and lows. And then I do have them speak also because sometimes speaking sounds different than singing. And then I'll go back later and listen to each one of those lavaliers and find the best one that matches my boom microphone, which is the best match for the studio microphone. So it's, it's a combination of things to really try to make their voices sound as good as they possibly can. And once I've found the lavalier that works with that actor, that lavalier then lives with that actor the whole way through. So it lived with them through the pre-recorded vocals. It lived with them every time that I wired them on set. So it, it really helps as a cohesive way of, again, uniting you know, the three of us and trying to, you know, keep everything, you know, as seamless and um, and real as possible, because this whole movie is about reality. I mean, Steven set out to make this thing real because the original West Side Story is kind of half play, half half movie. This movie, Steven wanted it to be 100 percent real. So everything we did was to make it real. I record. I tried to record as many actual sounds on the film sets. We had four different microphones that we would deploy out anywhere just to capture sounds, sounds of, you know, of cars going, period cars going by, or kids playing, or the, you know, the Derek dropping the load of dirt, or any of those things, you know, we'd put microphones all over the place just to try to, again, give Gary stuff to play with that was period, because you know, when you're on a film, you've you've brought in all of the all of this equipment. You've brought in all of these cars. You've brought in all these period props and things like that, and you just don't have access to them in normal life. So we really try to build as much of a little library as possible. Todd, tell us about recording Rita Moreno singing somewhere. That must have been an extraordinary experience. She was just wonderful to be around. I mean, she was she's she's just one of those people. Um, and it was really interesting because we started with her, we had her wired, so we wire and boom everybody. So, and 
The boom is usually the better sound. That's the sound that we want to go to. But the boom only works if it's in within about a foot, foot and a half of the actor. If it gets any further away, you hear too much ambience, and that doesn't work, particularly for vocals, because you're really trying to record vocals for a record label, you know, for a record album. So that scene started with her much further back. It doesn't show it actually on this cut because we always film with two cameras also. So one's closer, one's tighter. But it started with her further away. So we started with her on the wireless. And then as she got close to camera, there was a natural point to transition to the boom. And then we stayed with the boom for the entire rest of the song all the way over to when she sits down and and sings at the table at the end. But she just has such a wonderful voice. People that have great voices are just such a pleasure to record. What was the mood like on set during that performance? There was a lot of anticipation. Everybody was very quiet, very respectful. I mean, Steven's sets are incredibly respectful sets. They're the most professional sets I've ever worked on. Um, um, but everybody knew that, you know, it was coming. Everybody was totally prepared for it. And, you know, when we wired her, she was in a frame of mind, you know, so, you know, you just kind of, when you're wiring people, you have to respect actors where they are mentally at that moment, because they're preparing for the scene. I'm preparing for sound. They're preparing for the scene emotionally. And she was preparing for the scene. So we go in and just really as delicately as possible, wire her up with the microphone in obviously the best place. You know, you put extra care into microphone placement. Microphone placement is really 80% of what I do is microphone placement. But on, when you're doing a vocal that you know is going to be live, you just want to make sure everything's perfect. In contrast, tell us about recording Cool. That was all on set. And on Cool, um, so they all would wear earpieces. So in order for us to capture the sound effects of that whole chase and the throwing of the cans and everything else, um, the if you played speakers, you wouldn't capture the sound effects with that. So we would we made them wear earwigs as much as we possibly could. There were times when they definitely wanted speakers and wanted that kind of energy, but we would try to have them wear earpieces all the time so that they could stay in sync with the music and every piece that they did was totally choreographed as they ran around the corner, as they threw this, jumped on this, jumped on that. Every piece was to music, so they had to have earpieces in. And in order to capture the live sounds, that you couldn't go with a speaker. So it was always a push-pull, you know, because actors and choreographers really would love to have a speaker because it helps create more energy. But in essence, to, in a, the ability to capture live sound, in this case, was extremely important. So, Gary, what was the, uh, the Foley and the other uh, sound requirements? Well, cool. What I loved about cool was, um, and it is, it is one of the, 
places I made use of Todd's great recording of the natural movement of the actors. But it's a scene where there's a fight with no contact, you know? The gym is the same way. The, you know, the, the dance in the gym is essentially a fight with no hits. And cool is this fight. So the movement of, of especially of Tony and, and Riff, are choreographed like a fight, but there's no impacts until finally Riff punches them at the end. So the, 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 the movement, the sound of the movement's important to the scene because, you know, it's, it's aggressive. You know, the spins and the, and the way that they're, they're stepping on different items around the dock and all that kind of stuff. It's, a, it's an aggressive scene, even though it's beautiful. And, it's a, and I, I thought of it as a fight without a punch. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was fun. I mean, I love fights with punches, but fight with no punch turned out to be a lot of fun. <laughs> The other thing to mention just quickly is that in a scene like that, as, as, as some of the other scenes like America, because there's a lot of movement when um, during the pre-record of the vocals, because of uh, Stephen and his uh, storyboarding, he was able to, to uh, know what the scene was going to be in terms of where the actors would be and how physical the shots would be. Because the thing about a pre-record vocalist, it, it doesn't really work if somebody's running on, on the set and singing, uh, but they've been stationary in, in a recording studio. It's gonna you're gonna feel that effect. So he was able to obviously steer the pre-records with a sense of physicality, knowing what the final shot would be like, which helped when we were using pre-recorded vocals. It helped tremendously in a scene. And Cool was one of those where Tony is moving around. There's not a lot of vocals in that song, but in the beginning he 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 runs and jumps up and and there while he's singing and some of that comes out particularly well because he was uh you know able to express that during the pre-records that is one of the things in the pre-records that i help push through too because always actors are you know they're standing in front of a microphone and they're singing but in the scene particularly this scene they're running they're jumping you know they're either or they're dancing or they're doing something so physically you you need to have them you need to have them sound very similar just like what Andy said to what they're doing and that's something that I I go to all the vocal pre-records and try to talk to them and and or try to help them along in that process of keeping that energy of where they're going to be at that moment and and I think it's vitally important as Andy said it translates very well because if he was just singing it in front of a microphone it would never work with that kind of energy visually on set. I'm personally, I'm really, since I had very little to do with what Todd and Andy are talking about, I'm really impressed in this movie. But I don't think there's a moment you don't believe that the character is singing in the location and within the movie. You never are taken out of the movie. It feels organic to the sets, to the locations, to the story. And it's, uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's a seamless transition from dialogue to singing and back to dialogue. And you never don't believe it, ever. Gary, tell us what was involved in the rumble. <laughs> well, it's, it's a great location for one thing, because it's in the salt shed, which is, you know, I always love to have something, you know, so there's some salt on the floor that you can hear every once in a while with the footsteps and there's a cavernous quality to it. I remember, um, I'll admit this, because I thought that I was being really clever. There are these lights that go by in the windows, beginning of the rumble. You know, obviously on the set, they had these lights go by and, we heard cars outside to set up the scene and then inside I thought, well, you know, we're never going to want to hear those 
cars. It's just be distracting. Of course, I didn't prepare them. And in the scene, one of the first things Stephen said was, I'd love to hear some cars. I'd love to hear the cars go by. So we had to scramble to cut every one of those. But he was right because it, it just gave attention to the scene. And like a, like a lot of times in movies, contrast is important. So in the beginning, it has a life. The city has a life. And then by the end, when it's very sad and very tragic and very violent, that goes away. So you're left with this very kind of stark, quiet scene, which helps to have a, a less quiet scene to start. Um, and it was, you know, it was a, it, it's choreographed, but as, as a fight. So as opposed to Cool and, and Mambo, which are choreographed without contact, now we finally have punches and a knife fight. And I find it really, this version of it, I find it very um, uh, affecting because it's it, the brutality is there. And you you feel Tony's the potential for violence that he has, and the, and the you know the, this isn't these aren't kids playing around. This is really, really truly scary stuff. So I thought the scene was the sound helped the scene be brutal in a way that I thought um, really, if you think about it, it, really shifts the story at that point in the movie. It becomes a very uh, the story becomes very dark for a while after that. It sounded. I have to say, it was the best sounding fight I've ever heard. It sounded so real. It was incredibly real. Again, you know, keeping with the reality of everything else. But but that fight, you know, everything that you did, and I know there was a lot that went into it. It it worked so well. And there was one in, there was one funny story. I'm sorry, just there was one funny story is that we had so many lights on that film. So the lights that you were talking about, Janish, the cinematographer, had all these lights. And the idea was is that it was right next to an off-ramp off the highway. So the, all these lights would be panning through the window and shining down onto the set. And Janish had so many lights on there that we had this massive generator. It was one of the ones that they use, you know, when buildings shut down. And it was so loud. I had them put a wall of hay bales in front of it. And Gary and I were talking about this afterwards. And Gary said, oh, yeah. He goes, I added my own action generator sound. Yeah, I just, because the sound, the, if you control it. But here's the thing with sound. You want to control it, right? You don't want the uncontrolled. So the, the lights buzz in a, in a site like that. So at least in the beginning, you get this sense of the industrial sound of this place, which is the same exact light buzz that... Todd had them muffle on the set, but that's that's our job, you know. We we control things as much as possible, so you can choose which sound to put where and when to take it out. So it's all about control. It was very raw, though. I thought the sound in there was terrific because it had a real energy and a rawness to it. And when the music came in, which traditionally in a scene like that, maybe we would have played the music down slightly, but because it's West Side Story, the music was never going to be you know, an, an, an underselling. So we, we let it come in very strong and it had such sharp, jagged edges because that particular piece is so powerful in its own way that I think when you added everything together, it, it just made it so dynamic for the fight. Andy, how did you use Atmos in that scene? Well, we used Atmos all the way through. I mean, it was, uh, the, the music was always out in the room and wider off the screen. Um, the the backgrounds, I mean, I think the cars, for instance, I know Gary placed a lot of the car buys, particularly when we started the scene exterior, I think the cars were coming around right behind us all the time, which in Atmos, because of the full range speakers in the surrounds, you're able to play car buys and things very powerfully because of the low end that those speakers have. And I think you started the scene that way, right, Gary? And then well, took it in. Yeah, and the cars are the cars are also on a on a highway, an elevated 
road so they were higher so I could play them up in the surrounds. I'd also put the sound that Todd took out of the production, I put that up in the surrounds, uh, at the ceilings in this case. And the scene ends with a really important sound that goes back to the beginning of West Side Story, which are these church bells that take us out of the rumble into the into the next scene. That's also up in the in the ceiling. So, um, and you know, any space that's big like that uh, and tall, you can uh, at most in this movie, both for sound effects and music, made you feel. Um, it, it really did envelop you in a way that I thought was effective, emotionally effective in this movie. It was a great transition too, out of that into the, into the next piece of I feel I feel pretty. It's pretty. I mean, to go from those extremes, it worked incredibly well. Tough. That was a tough transition because uh, yeah, you changed the mood very quickly. But uh, it was it was done by going silent, really. I think, don't you think, Gary? Because of the end of that scene when we just went to something so quiet. Yeah, and they pick up the gun, and then after that, you don't really hear the cops arrive. You don't hear traffic. It goes pretty silent, except for the church bells that take us out. Um, and the church bells, by the way, I sent a lot of options of the church bells to the music department and had them choose the sound of the church bell because that's such a key key sound. But um, And I thought, in a way, that it, it, it gave I Feel Pretty an interesting undercurrent so that the whole time you're watching I Feel Pretty, which couldn't seem like a kind of lighthearted scene, but you know something tragic has just happened. You're left with this. Well, she doesn't know. She doesn't know. And it's, it's, I find it really affecting to that scene because of what happened before. And the order of those scenes is different in this movie than it was in the 61 movie. So. Right. Well, you're here. I feel pretty much sooner in the film. Yeah. Andy, would you talk about mixing the tonight quintet when you have the, you're cutting between the two gangs, Maria, Anita, yeah, that was a full, that was every vocal, everybody singing, all the group singing as well. So it was really one of those things where I tried to just feature everybody that was on screen, but then find a level where I could keep things going so that, uh, that we never lost them as a thread because it, it works as a, a fantastic piece, but they all interlink with with one another. So it was really just a question of of, of hitting the key moments wherever visually they needed to be hit but then never losing the thread of when somebody started to sing a line, it, we didn't just take it away. We just were able to soften it slightly so that it, it, it was, became part of the ensemble. And um, it took a little while to get that scene. We'd, we'd done the scene once uh, as, a, as a pre-event uh, before we did the actual final of the movie. So we kind of had a bit of fun with that scene a few months beforehand and got to know it. And then when we did it for real in the movie, um, it, it helped because um, it was familiar to us, but um, yeah, it was a it was a very tough one. I was really really happy with the way that came out, though, because it's so hard. I've done like Todd. I've done quite a few musicals, and quite often when there's an ensemble uh, piece like that, it's hard to know which one to focus on at any one time. But again, partly because of the structure of the song, and obviously very much the way that Stephen shot it, and that Michael Kahn. And, Sarah Brochure had cut the, the quintet together. It was just, I just followed the action, just followed what was happening on screen and uh, and uh, just built and built and built. So it was just a wonderful piece to, to work on because it just got louder and stronger and stronger as it went through. Was the entire song pre-recorded or did you use live elements in there? Uh, that was, a, that was I think that was fully pre-recorded if I remember rightly. 
There are only a couple of moments, I think, like um, when Riff goes walking by, you know, there's a little live little moment there. But no, it was it was it was all it was pretty much recorded. Yeah. It's hard to say on some songs we did use little pieces from. So it's always difficult to know if they were 100 percent pre-record or, or mostly. But I think that was definitely mostly. Yeah. What was the collaborative process like with, you know, with Steven, with Janusz, with the editors? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, from the very beginning, the three of us talked, which is really a wonderful thing. On most films, um, not so much musicals, but on most films, post-production and production sound don't talk. Sometimes post-production is not even hired, you know, until later on when we're into production. So the ability of the, for the three of us to sit down and talk and actually talk to Steven, you know, as a group as to what, what our goals were in the film and how we wanted to accomplish these goals was really a great thing. It was the greatest collaboration, really. Um, and then, you know, on set, obviously working with Janusz and working with lighting and that is kind of similar to most films, you know, because as a sound mix, production sound mixer, I'm always working with or fighting against the cinematographer, you know, depending upon where they're putting their second camera. You know, you have one camera on a 24 that sees the room and you have another one on a 100 that sees an actor close up. Sound wise, I'm going to have to sacrifice my sound one way or another. And then if there's lighting, you know, things that would, you know, give a boom man problem or that. But um, everybody understood the value of sound on this film. So it was a collaboration all the way around. And again, that's the way kind of Steven runs his sets is that everybody really works together. Everybody puts in 110% and everybody works together. So very much a collaboration. And, and, and just to say that I was lucky enough to go to two round table meetings way before they started shooting, which was involved people like Janine Tesori, who was the vocal um, producer and uh, David Newman was there and we, we everybody sat around Matt Sullivan the music supervisor and went through a lot of these discussions early on um, and it was terrific to have so many people in the room all really aiming to go including the choreographer by the way um, who was there and, and we all just went through and discussed all the different aspects and and, and, and what we would hope we could achieve with this and it was terrific collaboration and that was way before shooting which i don't normally as a re-recording mixer get involved in but uh i think stephen just wanted to put everybody together as early as possible and uh give it its best shot which i think we did todd would you talk a little bit about working with rachel and the other um cast members on set sure i mean you know the great thing was is everybody was there wanting the same goal of just to create this masterpiece, recreate this masterpiece. So, and, and Rachel being new came in as a pro and she has such an incredible voice. Um, when, when she's singing, um, a boy like that. So she goes from the lowest level to the highest level. And she has such a tremendous voice for such a small girl. She can belt it out. I literally would have to ride like the pregame fader on my mixer from zero to 40 just to cover her within that range because that's the kind of range that she had. Um, but every actor just really came, you know, with it. And, and, and like I said, we had a wire everybody all the time so it, 
a normal day you're wiring between 10 and 22 people. So we got very comfortable with everybody, you know. And so, I mean, I think just, you know, the overall intricacy of this mix, you know, and all the different levels that are in it is what really makes it wonderful. When you see it in a great theater, and I've seen it now in four different theaters, um, when you see it in a great theater, it is one of the most beautiful mix. It is the most beautiful mix I've ever heard. It really is. It's just, it's wonderful on every level. I think it's a big screen movie in a way that uh, it's, it's something that we need to remind ourselves of now. It's meant to be experienced on a large screen uh, and the mix is part of that. But I, I love that aspect of it. Um, it has a bigness, a cinematic quality to it that, uh, you know, you, you can only really experience that level of it on a, in a big theater, so. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for taking the time to talk with us about the film, and congratulations. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Thank you very much. That was fun, thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.